Good morning. I have been so thankful. I know I mention the weather every week, but when you work outside all the time, weather is everything. Uh, just really thankful for, it's amazing to walk out the door every morning and actually feel refreshed versus being hit by a heat wave. Um, looks like it's supposed to be the same the rest of this week, so I'm very thankful that in the month of August, uh, I want to go outside, so um, God is good all the time, even when the heat does hit you when you open the door. Um, please stand with me this morning as we read from the Word of the Lord for us today, Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 16. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. Fervent in spirit. Serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Persevering in tribulation. Devoted to prayer. Contributing to the needs of the saints. Practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be, do not be wise in your own estimation. Father, I pray this morning that you would help us as a body of believers to learn what you have for us from your word, that we would learn to love with genuine action, Lord. Not just acting, Lord, but in reality. I pray that your word would transform our hearts, that you would guide us and direct us, and that, Lord, your words would be hope and peace for us in the midst of the day that we live. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. I ask your words to be coming forth this morning. Lord, give me discernment, wisdom, direction. Cause all that I have prepared to be for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. Oftentimes... We live in a world, well we do, (laughs) we do live in a world that likes to define love in many different ways, right? Well, if if you were loving, then you would do this. If you were loving, you would do that. But I want to give us a picture of what Paul is not talking about when he says, Love without hypocrisy. I want you to imagine that the day is in February. The day is coming soon when all the men of our country give gifts to their wives or significant others. And so, imagine a a man who, he loves his wife, Maybe, but he feels obligated to give 
a gift because that's what everybody else is doing. If my wife doesn't get one, then everybody on Instagram is going to find out that I'm a terrible husband. No one loves my wife. I'm not talking about myself, okay? <laughs> just, just go with me. So imagine that man, he goes to the store and he picks out just the most beautiful bouquet of roses. And he gets the number for how long they've known each other. So let's, let's say it's 30 years. So he gets 30 roses. And then he remembers, oh yeah, she, she likes this too. So I'm going to get her some chocolates that aren't a surprise because I know what chocolate she likes. And on top of that, he knows that his wife loves sparkling water. So he grabs her a thing of sparkling water. My wife does anyways. So he grabs those things and he goes to the store and when he opens it, when he gets home, he knocks on the door because he wants it to be the first thing his wife sees. So she opens the door and she's like, oh, you thought of me. Why would you do this? I, I don't really deserve it. What if he replied, because I have to? Women, how would you feel if your husband came home and said, because I have to? Would that, would that be love? He's acting like he loves you. He's getting things for you. He, he's doing everything that someone who loves would do. But if his response to you was, because I have to, would you think that those gifts were given because he loves you or because the world tells him that he should do it? Let's do the reverse. What, what if he comes home and she answers the door and he says, and she says, I don't deserve this. Why, why would you? Because I want to. That would change everything, right? To the way that we say things, what we mean. When we want to do something, it expresses what's in our deepest desire. But if, if we say, I had to do this, that's why I'm doing it, that's not genuine. Oftentimes I think that love is messed up in the world. The, the idea of what love is is distorted because the devil knows that if he can distort what true love is, then no one will know what true love is, what genuine love looks like. Just go to television and movies. What they describe as love, is it love or lust? Is it true love or I like the idea of you? Let's think about it. Many movies that are made to depict a true love story, what are the people acting in those movies doing? They're acting like they love someone. And that, that's what Paul's talking about. Are you an actor or actress? Are you acting like you love someone in the church? Are you being someone that you... Really or not? Because Megan likes this show that I'm sure some of you have heard of on Hallmark Channel. And the actors were really good. You were convinced that they loved each other. 
right? They, they did a good job. They had good, what they say, chemistry. And so the whole series, you're like, oh, it, it, it's got to, eventually they've got to actually get married and have kids and have all these things. But they were only acting. That wasn't actually real. And their acting was so good that some people started to believe that maybe they actually liked each other in real life because it was so good. And when you see those actors in another movie acting like they love someone else, it seems messed up, right? You're like, wait, that person was in that movie. Now they're acting like they love this one, right? Maybe, maybe you've never thought about that. Maybe I'm just strange. But that's what hypocrisy is. A hypocrite is an actor. That's what it means in, in the Greek language. The Greek people, someone who acted was a hypocrite. They weren't really loving. And so what Paul is saying, make your love genuine. Make your love without hypocrisy. Or be sincere in your love. When, re- when love is real, that love takes forms that the world today is not loving. I know that sounds strange. But the world does not love what real love is. Because it requires actions that may not seem like love. The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5 says, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The reason we instruct, the reason that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy is so that his love will be from a pure heart, not a a distorted heart, impure, filthy, and a good conscience, that his conscience will be right with God. And a sincere faith, it all, it all comes down to sincerity and purity of heart. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, 22 and 23, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you've been born again, not of a seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring Word of God. See, we're purifying our souls by the Holy Spirit's power so that we can sincerely love the brethren. This is what Paul is talking about. And so the title this morning is Genuine Love in the Church. Genuine Love in the Church. I was going to do All the way to verse 21, but I decided there was too much here. And next week, we're going to do genuine love in the world. Because Paul breaks these two things down, and he's talking about how we love one another here as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he talks about loving all men and how that looks. So, what, what are actions that we take to show 
genuine love. The first one that he gives is not what you would guess, right? Abhor, that's the last word I would think of would go pair well with love. You know, they say cheese and wine goes together. I don't know, apparently. But I guarantee you, no one thought abhor and love should go together. But Paul is clear. He's, he follows this command of sorts up with a quick abhor what is evil. That doesn't seem like the first word you would say. And I think in the world today, this is so needed. How many times have you been checked off the mark or told to go away when you abhor evil? When you address wickedness? When you seek to lead a brother or sister back to Christ? Well, judge not, lest you be judged. Have you heard that before? Or, that's not loving to to tell others what they should do. It's not that we're going around trying to be the church police, okay? We need to be careful there. We're not the police. We haven't been given a badge and authority to check everyone else's heart. But when we are loving as we ought to, we need to abhor evil. Why? Because we cannot love God and we cannot love our brothers if we love what is evil because it is against God. The word abhor gives us the idea of detest, hate with unquenchable hatred, and we can't get away from it fast enough. That's how we should, should respond to evil. We should run from it instead of Uh, Let's see how close I can get to the fire without getting burned. Right? We've all gotten burned because we got too close to the fire. We didn't abhor the evil. We, We liked it too much. But he doesn't leave it there. He, he, he gives us the negative. Abhor something. And then he says, cling. Cling to what is good. We aren't just to abhor because that's legalism, right? If, if all we say is, we don't do that, we don't do that, we don't do that, we don't do that, we, we don't do anything. No. Paul is not telling us to not do anything. Paul is telling us don't do this abhor evil and cling to what is good. Or the King James says cleave. What does that think make you think about? Marriage? Leave your father and mother and cleave or cling to your wife. This word gives us the idea to cleave to glue. Is that picture of the bond of marriage a devotion to something? Be devoted to good. Cling to it. Don't abhor it. See? We're we're seeing the fight, the battle here. We abhor what is evil on this side, but we're clinging to what is good. We're holding fast to it because we know that it is life and hope and peace. 
Are we, in sincere love, abhorring wickedness? Are we willing to expose sin in the right way, with the right heart? Are we abhorring evil first in our own lives? And then, when a brother or sister is dabbling in sin, seems to be heading in the wrong direction, are we willing to confront sin? Or when we're witnessing to brother, others in the, in the world, are we willing to confront sin? Are we willing to expose sin so that their hearts can be changed? Because if we are not willing to expose sin as it is, then no one will be changed. We ourselves will walk away if we don't deal with sin. We don't abhor it, abhor evil. Others will continue in sin. The lost will not be saved if they do not know that they need a Savior. Why would you become a Christian if you didn't think you're a sinner? There's no reason. If I want to join a social club, I don't need to join the church. The church is a gathering together of born-again believers. Men and women who have come to realize that without God, they are wicked. And they abhor who they were. And they love and are devoted to Christ. Are we clinging to Christ? Are we clinging to God? Why? Jesus said, there is none good but God. Are we clinging to Him? Is is He everything to us? I hope so. I have to admit, I, I don't always cling like I should. And it's often due to the fact that I don't abhor what I should. Or vice versa. I'm not clinging tight enough. And when I'm not, I don't love the Lord as I should. My delight in God is not as strong as it should be. And so I'm drawn away to the things of this world. Then Paul talks about, more specifically, our love for one another. So we're to abhor evil and cling to what is good. And, verse 10, he says, Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Devoted. I think this... This implies a, a familial care for one another, right? But it's not one way, right? It's, it's a two-way street. It's reciprocated. We all have families, and there are siblings, and maybe we're the one of them who doesn't reciprocate the love of the others. But in a family, we love one another. It's not we all love one person and not 
receiving back. But we don't love so that we receive back. We love because it's natural. I think that's what Paul is getting at. This love, this brotherly love that we have for one another in the body should be so natural that we're not trying to make someone else love us back. We're loving just because we want to. Because they're a child of God, just like us. And this is an issue that the church needs to capitalize on because the world around us is searching for identity. They don't have mothers and fathers at home. They don't have siblings. They're looking for family, and the church is the best picture A lot of them are turning to gangs. Why? Because that's where they're getting their identity. That's their family. Or to some club or or some, you name it. Gaming community. We find our identity somewhere. And now people are finding their identity in gender issues, in sex issues, in racial issues. But when we are in Christ, we find our identity in Christ and in the family of Christ, in the church. This word devoted, Matthew Henry says, it signifies not only love, but a readiness and inclination to love, the most genuine and free affection, kindness flowing out as a spring. It's natural. You don't go to a spring and try to make it let water out, right? A natural spring naturally flows out. And that's what this brotherly love should do. It should flow out of us to one another. We should naturally love one another. That includes in love correcting one another. But it also includes in love caring for one another. And Paul gets into more specifics later on. But naturally caring with one another. Grieving with one another. Rejoicing with one another. This is what brotherly love looks like. And one of the ways that we do this is the second half of verse 10. Give preference to one another in honor. Showing preference and honor is about seeking to honor others ahead of yourselves. That is, seeking to build up one another with our words about them, not cutting them down. I think the Apostle Paul is essentially saying what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, where he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but... With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. You see that? Don't regard one another 
as more important than yourselves. Or sorry, don't regard yourself as more important than, than others. We, we're not running around seeking to be that, that, that most important person. We're not trying to win a popularity contest. John Murray says it well. He says, instead of looking and waiting for praise from others, we should be foremost in according them honor. Or, if we need to translate it to today's terms, we need to be the first person seeking to honor them. Serving Christ in whatever capacity the Spirit gives is not about giving honor to us. It's about glorifying God. And so we should seek to build each other up in our words about the others, in the way that we talk to one another. (coughs) I don't need to be going around talking about how great of a preacher I am, because I honestly don't think I am. But God in His grace can use someone like me. Just as none of you need to go around talking about how great of something you are either. We are about serving and honoring God. And and when we talk about one another, it should be in glowing terms, not, oh, do you know about that person? Man, they... We should be seeking to build one another up. That doesn't mean we don't deal with sin. I, I think I made that clear already. But... The purpose of the church is to build up and edify one another. Just because someone isn't serving in front doesn't mean that they can't be built up and honored. Right? Our position in the church is not of our choosing. It's God's work. Yes, He he chooses us, but... I didn't choose to be preaching. God in His direction and sovereignty has ordered the events of my life that I'm here this morning. Just as He's ordered each of your lives to the point where you are today. But lest lest we take this charge here of giving preference to one another as, oh, well, we, we need to not exert the office that God has put us in. Let's, let's say the Apostle Paul decided to take this to the extreme that some people do. He said, you know what, I'm an apostle, but I'm just going to defer to others because I don't want them to think that I'm not honoring them. No, that, that would be rejecting the call of God on him. Paul, at times, in the books of, especially in 2 Corinthians, He is very assertive. I am an apostle of Christ Jesus. I say this as an apostle. This is an authority that God has given me because there were wolves coming in and trying to kill the sheep. Take them away. So there are times when honoring one another above one another means fulfilling our calling. And I think that's why in verse 
11, Paul says, not lagging behind in diligence. When we show honor and are looking to give it to others, that doesn't negate diligence in fulfilling the calling and office that God has given us in the church. No, we are to pursue it with diligence and fervency. Right? That just because we're in a place, that doesn't mean we're... we're I'm not going around hoping that... After the service, Mr. Lamb says, you're the greatest preacher I've ever heard. No, that's not what I'm here. (laughs) I pray that God speaks through me, but that's not why I'm here. I'm not going around just trying to draw out compliments after the service. I hope you, you don't think I am. I'm not trying to. We are... To honor one another, to speak well of one another, especially when they're not around. I know that's hard for some of us. Maybe we have a background with someone. We know the backstory, and we hear people speaking so well of someone in the church, and, and we know the backstory, and we, and we want people to know. They don't need to know, it's none of their business. We should honor one another. But don't let that keep us from being diligent. Because our calling requires diligence. As believers, we are not showing love if we are not diligent to the calling that we have. And I want to relate that back to last week's message. If we are not being diligent to seek the Lord, to follow after Him, to be used by Him, by the calling that He has placed upon us, then what are we doing? We are hurting one another. I think we clarified and made clear last week that the gifts of the Spirit are for the edifying of ourselves. Is that what we said? No, it's for edification of the church. And so when we are not diligently serving the Lord, we are robbing one another. You see that how that relates to brotherly love? When we are not diligent in our service to the Lord, in our devotion to the Lord, in fulfilling the calling God has placed on us, it affects each of us. If God gives you the gift of prophecy and you refuse to act upon that in diligence, or maybe the Lord gives you a word of wisdom and you refuse to be diligent in your your work with that, it affects the church negatively. And all of us have been called to follow the Lord. So when we are being lazy... It affects everyone. Just, in a, just imagine a home. If, if the father decides, you know what, I don't want to work for a week. But they live from week to week. Does, does that just affect him? No. It affects his wife and his children. They all suffer because of his laziness. Or imagine the mother says, you know what, I need a break from these kids. I'm done. I'm just going to let them do whatever they want. I'm just going to put food out and see what happens. 
for a week. Guess what's going to happen? The house is going to look like a pigsty. All you mothers know. <laughs> if she decides, then you know what? I'm tired of this. I'm not going to be. I'm tired of being the only diligent one here, so I'm not going to be diligent. It affects everyone, not just her. And that's the same in the church. Our diligence to be devoted to the Lord and serving the Lord affects one another. But the thing is, we can't be diligent if we're not fervent, if we do not love the Lord. And that's why Paul, I believe, says fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Fervent in spirit. What does he mean? Douglas Moo says this, he says, to allow oneself to be set on fire by the Holy Spirit. Such zeal, fired by the Spirit Himself, will lead to true serving of the Lord. Are you set fire or set on fire by the Spirit? Is the Spirit compelling you to serve the Lord, to be diligent in your daily life? Because you know that your relationship with Christ does not just affect you, it affects the entire church, the lost. Do you want to serve the Lord? You need the Spirit's power. All these things require the work of the Lord. Christ must be all. If we are not devoted to Him, then it doesn't matter how hard we try to be diligent, how hard we try to love one another, how hard we try to abhor evil or cling to good. It will be useless because in the end it will be all works that we have done apart from the work of the Lord. Fervently desire the gifts. Remember that from last week? I would say fervently desire for the Holy Spirit to move through you so that you can actively serve the Lord. We see in the book of Acts constantly the apostles who were filled with the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. They multiple times, or at least one time for sure, asked for the Lord to give them courage, guess what? He filled them again. I believe we need fervency. Not just, not just a hype, okay? I want to be clear. Because some people confuse lights and action and, and lots of activity for fervency. No. Fervency that is led by the Spirit will always glorify God. It puts guide rails on our fervency and our zealousy. It helps us to truly serve the Lord. And when we're serving the Lord, guess what? Verse 12 is true. We are rejoicing in hope. 
The hope is the cause of joy. So when, when the circumstances of this life are causing us to lose sight of our hope, we must turn to Christ as He is our hope. And doing this will be joy, will lead to joy and rejoicing. If we forget our hope, we'll lose our joy. How many times in our lives when circumstances are just crazy, it seems like the world is ending, and maybe some of you feel that way today. With the things that are going on in our world, what is being thrown out there now. Talk about evil to behore. Things like making pedophilia a disorder that you can't control. Or something normal. Talk about something disgusting. Or the fact that I think the last number I heard was one in five children are trafficked in the United States. That's incredible. Can you imagine? One in five. That means if by God's if I were not here and my children, the chances are high. And sometimes by their own parents. And when you see these things going on in the world, you see the depravity of man, and you see this and you think, there's no hope. Yes, there is, because our hope is not in this world. Yes, He is with us, and we can enjoy His presence with us here and now. But there is a place where none of these things will be happening, where there will be freedom from sin. The depravity of man will be destroyed and we will be worshiping God forever. That it gives me hope. I don't have to be fearful. I can have joy because whatever happens in this world, one day, by God's grace and His mercy, I will stand before Him and He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Just like I believe Stella's mom. I'm sure she's standing before the throne, worshiping with all of her might to this morning. I don't know what it is in heaven. I don't think there's, I don't know if there's days or not. But um, that being said, we all know people who have gone ahead of us. They're a great cloud of witnesses. And if it were possible, I'm sure they were cheer, cheering us on. But from a vantage point that we do not understand. So rejoice, not in what you can do, not in the circumstances of your life, but in hope. But not just some random hope. It's not subjective. It is Christ. It is heaven. It is God Himself. I think about places like Seattle. People say that suicide there is really high. And the reason they say that is because there's so little sunlight that people get depressed. Or, or London, same, same problem. Or, or any place where there's not a lot of sun. For example, in some places of, of Alaska, you go six months with no sunlight. And they say depression and suicide is skyrockets during that time. 
Why? Something about the sun brightens our world. And I think this analogy flips really well to Christ. When He is radiant to us, when we delight in Him and are devoted to Him, we are rejoicing. Our joy is full and and the depression goes. The stress that we feel, the struggles and worry that we have can't take hold anymore because He is filling us. That doesn't mean we don't struggle. I feel like every semester at school, there's a, a couple weeks where I just want to quit and I'm done. <laughs> but every time, it seems like somehow I manage to pass my classes and make it through. If I had quit, guess what? I would have fulfilled my prophecy, fulfilled my own prophecy that I would not pass, that I would fail. So we must not forget our hope. Because if we do, we'll lose our joy. But that hope helps us because we need to persevere in tribulation. Because tribulation isn't just a one-time event in the Christian life. It is a constant event throughout Christian time. And if there's anyone that would have known, it would have been Paul, right? I mean, he was constantly under persecution. We don't understand the kind of persecution here in the United States. Here it's a little bit more subtle so far. I don't believe for my children that it'll be subtle if the Lord doesn't return. I think it's going to be a lot more in your face, may even be deadly. But we need to learn to persevere in tribulation. Not endure. There's a difference. Persevere gives us an idea that we are faithfully following. We are faithfully keeping the faith. It makes me think of what Jesus said in John 6.33. He said... These things have I spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. And everybody said, why didn't anybody say amen? We don't like that, right? (laughs) In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. It is our hope that drives our persevering because we know that no matter what happens, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And so when we persevere together as a body, remembering our hope and rejoicing in that hope, when the tribulation comes, I'm not talking about an event, I'm talking about daily occurrences, opportunities, to not be faithful, to not persevere. We need to continue. Tribulation is a part of this life. But we must remain constantly 
faithfully drawing closer to the Lord. When He is our hope, we'll persevere. But there's a problem. Oftentimes, we forget something. And I think that's why Paul says, devoted to prayer. Because we will forget our hope, and we will not persevere in in tribulation if we're not devoted to prayer. Prayer is essential to perseverance. It's essential to hope. Just look at Jesus Christ, one of the greatest examples of one who took tons of time to pray. Jesus was, yes, God in the flesh, but He understood something that many in the church today reject. Prayer is necessary for a holy life. How do you think Jesus overcame? Do you think it was just an accident? He just pulled the God card out. I'm God, so it's going to work. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit. And He spent constant time. I mean, just think of how many times, just in the book of Matthew, how many times it would say, Jesus went off to pray alone. Jesus sent the disciples away to pray alone through the night. That's how Jesus had hope. Yes, He was God in the flesh. But as a human being, He needed hope. He persevered. John Murray says this, he says, How dismal would tribulation be without hope? That's pretty true, right? Without the resources of hope and patience conveyed to us through prayer. God speaks to us. Prayer is not a one-way conversation. I know the world around us thinks that. Well, you just throw up a prayer and hope that something happens. No, as Christians, we believe it's a two-way conversation. Conversation is, as John Piper calls it, it's a wartime walkie-talkie. We need to be in direct communication with headquarters. God speaks to us. He gives us hope. How many of you have experienced this, that in times of complete confusion, nothing that you could do could give you peace. And you go to the Lord and you just begin to cry out to Him and pray, Lord, I don't know what to do in this situation. When you get done praying, you don't have an answer, but you have peace. It's like the Lord says, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to guide you. I'm going to show you how to endure. So we must be devoted to prayer. But loving one another... And rejoicing and preserving, persevering in tribulation requires boots on the ground. Loving one another is not good enough to just say kind words. Oh, it'll be good. Here's a little... Here, I'll pray for you that things will go well with this situation. I'm not saying that prayer is not good. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see here what he says 
in the following verse, in verse 13, he says, contributing to the needs of the saints. We are, as a church, when we begin to show love, when we want to show brotherly love, there's a point where action must take place because love without action is not love. Love and action are inseparable. It's kind of like faith and obedience. The two cannot be separated. We can define them differently, but they are inseparable. And love and action are inseparable. If we say we love someone, then we do something. Just like the man at the beginning, he brought home the things that his wife loved. Not because he had to, but because he wanted to. And so this, this kindness, this brotherly love that, that flows freely like a spring will eventually lead to physical action in this world. And if we're not willing to take action, do we really love? I'm not talking about all the social justice things that are now being preached as gospel. We need to be careful. We need to understand what love looks like. Does does love make comfortable the lives of sinners? Possibly, but only because we want to preach the gospel. We want them to understand that God loves them. One of the ways I believe, and I think this is why he puts it right after it, practicing hospitality. I believe this is one way that we contribute to one another. Inviting one another in our homes. The problem is, in the United States, we have this concept of privacy. Not that it's bad. But we've taken it to the extreme that we don't want anyone in our personal space. You know, dinner time is my time. Or lunch time is my time. Or whatever it may be. Breakfast time. This day is my day. The the whole week's my week. Practicing hospitality. What what does that look like? Hey, Joel and Laura, can you all come over? We we feel like we need to be hospitable today. Now, would you all feel like that was being hospitable if I invited you over like that? No. Ugh. I think we should have you over now because we haven't been hospitable lately. No, it, it's a desire to get, a, get, a, get, get together. Why? Because who doesn't enjoy food? And who doesn't enjoy fellowship with other believers? I think especially since the COVID things have happened, I, think, I hope that we enjoy fellowship even more. I hope. If we don't, then maybe we need to Ask the Lord to change our hearts because we should desire to be together. We should desire to share with one another. 
That doesn't mean that your hospitality has to look like T-bone steaks on the grill. Maybe it does. Maybe you got some extra T-bones and you're like, you know what? I want to be extra hospitable today. Maybe it looks like hot dogs and hamburgers, which hamburgers are almost expensive as a T-bone now, but um, maybe it looks like chicken. That's, that's about the cheapest thing you can get right now. But who, who knows what it may look like? It may just be a snack together or, or coffee for those who drink coffee or tea or inviting one another into your home, making your home inviting. Maybe your home screams, don't come in. <laughs> we all know those homes, right? But our home should be inviting. Our attitude to having people over, people should think, you know what? If I was going to go to somebody's house, I would want to go to their house. Maybe, maybe it involves, and this doesn't necessarily reflect on our hospitality in the church, but maybe our hospitality involves us sitting in the front yard instead of the backyard. I know our society loves our privacy. We've got our privacy fences in the back. We have our parties in the back so no one knows what's going on. Because we're afraid the neighbor might come over and eat some burgers or maybe those T-bone steaks we didn't want to share are being grilled that night or maybe we got the smoker out and we got some good old brisket. We don't want them to come over. But maybe hospitality involves doing something in the front yard. Maybe it involves sitting on the front porch, if you have one of those, and saying hi to neighbors as they walk by. I don't have many neighbors walking by my house because we're in the country. But maybe you live in the city and, and you don't get to see your neighbors. An opportunity to show hospitality. Be different. How many of you all remember when people sat on their front porches? Like three of you. <laughs> but well, it was a different time, right? It wasn't all about us. We, we wanted those relationships with our neighbors. Now it's like, well, I'm not sure I want to know them because then they'll want to be friends and they're too close, right? Maybe Maybe I'm the weird one, but... That's what our society says. You know, let's have our privacy, and if we want somebody in to invite somebody into our inner circle, we'll do it. But practicing hospitality, it's one of the ways. It's not the only way. I just think it's one of them. I think to diagnose our hospitality level, we can ask ourselves two questions. Do we actively seek to invite people into our homes? Or do we seek to keep a private life that no one else is allowed to enter into? I think those two can really help us to see where our hospitality really is. And this, again, I believe Paul is directly addressing hospitality in the church, not necessarily to all men. But I do believe that as Christians, our hospitality should be known among the world. That we invite strangers in. That we care for the sick. I 
And then in verse 14, Paul kind of gives us a picture of what's going to happen when we love those in the world. But what he's going to really stress once we get to verse 17 next week. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Bless those who persecute you. Is that the first thing that comes to mind when you think of persecution? To bless those who persecute you? Is that what social media would recommend? If you get on Facebook and talk about somebody persecuting you, will will your Christian brothers and sisters recommend that you bless them? What, what do you think they would recommend? Get justice now, right? Let's cancel them. Let's, let's make sure that they pay for their persecution. We're so used to, as Christians, this idea of no persecution, that we don't even understand what it's like to be persecuted. We don't understand what it's like to not receive justice. I experienced it in Guatemala multiple times. Because justice there does not exist. Well, it does for on occasion. But generally speaking, justice in this life is not always felt there. Instead, you feel like the one who is being persecuted because you were the one who didn't receive justice. Persecution is never reasonable. Right? If you're being persecuted because you deserve it, That's a different story. If you're going out of your way to make sure that people hate you, you you feel like you deserve it and you don't complain, right? Like if if you're going out and saying things in a specific way so that you can make people hate you, you say, oh, see, people hate me, so Jesus must love me. No, we shouldn't be going out and purposely seeking to be persecuted. We should be faithfully following the Lord, and if persecution comes, we realize it's not because they hate us, it's because they hate Him. He said it would happen. And John Murray says this about persecution. He says, It is the unreasonable of this persecution that is liable to provoke resentment in the minds of believers. And with resentment, thoughts of vindictive retaliation. Right? We, because it's unreasonable, because we're following you, Lord. Why do these people hate us? We haven't done anything wrong to them. Why, why are they doing this to us? It draw, causes us to be bitter and angry. And what do we want to do? We want to get revenge. Paul gets into that uh, for next week's message. But that's not what Paul's saying. He says... Bless those who persecute you. What does that require to bless someone? Well, I think he gives us an even better clue. Bless and do not curse. It requires a change of mind. 
A change of thought. We are no longer to just bless, oh, bless you. Bless her little heart. That does, does that sound like you're blessing someone? Bless your little heart leads, <laughs> leads to gossip. It's always followed by gossip, right? Bless her little heart. She doesn't know any better, right? That's not actually blessing someone. That's, that's a putting a curse because the heart is still the same. Paul is getting at when we bless people who persecute us, it has to come from a heart to realize it is not me. We have to realize that our attitude is not to be a mixture of blessing and cursing, but one of unadulterated blessing. Our blessing should be complete. And I I experienced this when I was in Guatemala and I I got shot. The Lord showed me right there in that moment that I should say the same thing that Jesus said on the cross and that Stephen said. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. And God taught me forgiveness through this because what I realized is That moment, I wasn't bitter. I wasn't angry. And when the temptation to be bitter later on, when the pain came, when I had to fix a vehicle that these other men destroyed with their weapons, when that day came, I had already decided to bless them and ask the Lord to save them. And so... I didn't have to worry about wanting to curse them because every time the devil would tempt me to curse them, God would remind me, remember? Remember what you said? What you prayed for these men? So we are to show the love of Christ in blessing those who persecute us instead of retaliating. And that is really hard. And I don't think we truly understand yet how difficult that is. God wants to get to the heart of the matter. So we can't just bless and curse. We can't do both. We have to bless from hearts that are devoted to Christ, that are fervent in the Spirit, serving the Lord. And then in verse 15, Paul kind of returns to how we care for one another. How we show our love for one another. And in in that we rejoice with those who rejoice. We don't get jealous. We We don't get upset. Oh, I can't believe that so and so got a new car. Or that so and so got a new house. Or they got that and this. And God, you don't seem to care about me. No, we should be Praise the Lord, so-and-so got this. The Lord has been blessing them with their work and, and now they have a, a better car that they can rely on and, and better serve the Lord. Or they got a better whatever, you name it. God is blessing them, praise the Lord. That, that glorifies God. 
We shouldn't be jealous of what God is doing in someone else's life. We should be rejoicing with them. Let's say two of you are believing God to save one of your children. And the one comes to Christ. Should the other one be, I can't believe that God saved her child first and not mine. No, we should be rejoicing. Praise the Lord, your child has come to Christ. God is doing a work. But it doesn't involve just rejoicing. It involves weeping together. Caring for one another in such a way that when the others are weeping, maybe they've lost a child. Maybe they've lost a parent or a loved one. And you're genuinely broken for them. Maybe, who knows what the situation is, but we should come along and and desire with all our hearts to love them. We should see these occasions for rejoicing and weeping as our own because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever gone to a funeral of a family member and thought, well, I shouldn't cry now? No, it's natural as a family. And that's what it is in the church. When our brothers and sisters that God has brought together are weeping, we should be weeping with them, not rejoicing in their calamity, not indifferent, but caring for them. And this goes into verse 16. We, we, we rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep because we are of the same mind. He says, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. This reminds me so much of verse 3. Right? You ought not to think more highly of your of himself than he ought to think. What does he mean by lowly? There's a lot of debate what he means. Does he mean the poor? And and I think there is a, a clear picture that he's painting. Those who have less financially, socially powerful. We we shouldn't prefer one over the other. Just like James says, don't don't give the best seats to the to the rich man when he walks in. Preference is not the thing. We are not to be wise in our own estimation. We are to heap honor upon one another. We are to care for one another. We are to love, not for ourselves, not with hypocrisy, but in genuine Love. Just because a brother or sister in Christ doesn't have what we have does not mean we can't associate with one another. We should be all the more joyful in contributing to one another. 
I have extra. Take one of mine. It's not a handout. It's a gift. God has given me, so I want to give to you. It's not about me. We should seek to be of the same mind toward one another because it's so easy in a situation in the church to think, well, they're thinking exactly the same way I'm thinking, so they, they must understand what I'm going through, right? Or vice versa. If I were in their situation, I would do this. There's no way I would do that. We don't know. We've never been there. Right? We, we don't know what they're going through. And that doesn't mean that we don't ask. And I'm trying to understand your side of things. And I think that's kind of what Paul's talking about. We need to, to be willing to get together and to, to talk through differences. To understand one another. Understand where we're coming from. Because if we don't understand one another, how in the world are we supposed to be of the same mind? And we use the Word of God to speak into each other's lives. This is why I believe what I believe. This is why I'm doing this. Because I believe God says in His Word, and name the place, that we should do this. And so, that's why I'm doing this. And you can be like, oh, I've never thought about it like that. Or, I didn't realize that's what you were doing. Or, it builds unity. I believe Paul has given us so many practical ways here to love one another to love genuinely i pray that the lord would help each of us to show genuine love to one another to be hospitable to honor one another to continue to diligently and fervently serve the lord this is not just a suggestion. These are commands that Paul is giving. We need to care for one another as Christ has cared for us and showed us His mercy. Well, I believe that's all the Lord has for us today. And next time we'll see how we're to love those in the world. Both are very important because sometimes it's actually harder to love people in the church than outside of the church. I know that seems backwards, but it is because we believe we've been changed, we've been transformed, but we can't figure out how God could have left that person that way and they still need to change, right? sometimes loving the world is a little bit easier but I don't think it's necessarily easier let's pray Father we thank you for the love that you showed us you truly gave your life you showed us genuine love in Christ on the cross help us to have sacrificial love for one another Lord, to care for one another, not only in this church, but the church around the world. Many churches who have need and 
need more of you. Father, I pray that you and your presence would help us individually, corporately, as a body to love one another. Father, it says the world will know us by our love, and I pray that that would be true. That when people encounter us, we would be honoring one another, encouraging one another, confronting one another in love. Lord, guide us today. Guide us this week. And help us, Father, to live this out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I pray that God will be with you this week. He'll bless you with wisdom and encouragement. will help you to apply this message to your life and encourage you to show love to one another. Go in the presence of the Lord. See you all next week.